minutes to four o'clock and time for Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. And as usual, I'll be here until six o'clock, followed by Done by Law. Today, a young Yemeni-American continues her life-threatening hunger strike to bring attention to life for her people at home under brutal sanctions and bombardments. Speaking with peace activist Kathy Kelly. More about Linus Corporation in Malaysia, this time allegations of deception with Lee Tan, environmental consultant. Our record on human rights failings exposed to the world. Professor Spencer Zivkak has detailed all our failings. Another Australian company accused of deception, this time in the Philippines, and it's Oceania Gold, and Peter Murphy has that story. And Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees asked the ALP to consider the injustice of any potential Palestinian state. And of course, Mr Kevin Healy, with his week, that was. A week, Jane, listener, when big supremo scuttlebem Morlachson, a.k.a. Scummo, must be regretting his feigned or otherwise angry attack on former head postmistress Christina Holgate, the Holgate Affair, after her latest appearance before a Senate committee has exposed the secret plan to privatise the profitable parts of the service and close down most of the remainder. Secret. Hardly. The Postal Union predicted ages ago the change of name of the parcel delivery section, a raising true blue Aussie post from the title, was the first move in handing it over to the super-efficient private sector, and from a business point of view, it makes real sense. You have a highly profitable division which can subsidise the other division, mail, for which you have a social licence, so you hive off the profit and leave yourself with the losses. Brilliant. It's called economic rationalism. Recommended by a totally neutral Boston Consulting Private Sector Profits Group, which would have no vested interest in recommending a highly profitable government service should be made efficient, and the government would have chosen them for their neutrality. And after all, this leaked out thanks to Scuttlebem's parliamentary outburst. She will no longer be true blue Aussie post-supremo on my watches. Uh, don't you mean watch? Watchers. The Minister for Privatising Government Profit, Paul Fetcher Pittens, said Christina Holgate was wrong, that he had never wanted to privatise the profit, and the Boston Profits Report was just a report. He wasn't even sure why it was commissioned in the first place, and he has no intention of privatising the parcels leaving us to look forward to his reasoning, or what passes as reasoning, when he announces his change of mind. Thursday, big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs ruled out any imminent privatisation. Imminent, Josh. Well, certainly not over the weekend or by the end of the week. A couple of Socialist Party backbenchers who were around when their lot privatised Qantas and the Commonwealth Bank attacked the government for even thinking of privatising a profitable government enterprise. So obviously, they must have seen the light over the years. Or otherwise, people might suggest they're hypocrites or just members of parliament. Pick the difference. Twenty years after an attack by a gang of Saudis led the US of the UN of the US of the world to retaliate by invading Afghanistan, 
that bit's never quite been explained. The US obviously planning to pull out of Afghanistan, having succeeded in achieving 20 years of slaughter, murder, destruction, killing and being killed, leaving Afghanistan much as it found it. Well, less a few million people thanks to the killing and being killed bit, so we asked True Blue Aussie's new Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, whether True Blue Aussie, a proud acolyte in the coalition of the killing, would therefore also withdraw. The decision has, like, you know, like, been, you know, taken that we will, like, you know, like, withdraw, uh, taken in Canberra. Uh, no, no, obviously, like, you know, Washington. Speaking of a pain in the, after telling us the uh, jab, four million by a few weeks ago, is painless, doesn't hurt, poor old Scuttlebeam has discovered the jab can be quite painful after all. Still, it's revealed the competence, which clearly also saw him thrown out of his previous jobs as scuttled them from marketing those four million jabs promised for a month ago, now possibly in with a chance by Christmas. Presume they mean next Christmas, but displaying his leadership qualities, scuttled them will now meet with state supremos twice a week. It's up to them. He went to the wash basin in a brilliant Pontius Pilate gesture. The buck stops in state capitals. Thirty years ago, government told us white troubler was he had learned its lesson from the deaths in custody report. And thank goodness they did make the improvements and adopt the recommendations for we can but imagine the rates of death in custody and rates of incarceration of a terrenalious people uh, what they would be today if they hadn't heeded the disturbing document. So obviously the problem must lie with the terrenalious people themselves and not with the wise governments which so care for them. On one death in custody in the US, a retired, uh, sorry, a copper called by the defence in the um, in the George Floyd trial countered lots of other coppers who conceded the killer's actions were dangerous and not part of police procedure. We'll have to take their word for that. But this retired copper said it was part of procedure, was most definitely not dangerous, and direct quote, it's a control technique, uh, which might indicate it is part of training, but we'll let that one slide. It's a control technique, he said with a straight face. It doesn't hurt. Uh, now we know coppers are stupid, but it doesn't hurt. The poor bastard's dead. So apparently he died painlessly. To celebrate the ongoing trial, just down the road, another white copper pulled out her taser and killed another black, proving again that driving your car is a criminal offence, or nay, you know, a capital offence, and... Yeah, yeah, we know coppers are stupid, but even they should be capable of telling the difference between a taser and a gun. Mistaken identity, a convenient mistake, or not so mistaken. The most depressing thing about the wall-to-wall ad infinitum coverage of the demise of a 99-year-old British doll bludger is, imagine how unbearable it's going to be when she goes off. Suppose the best we can say, as I said last week, as tribute is that at least that's one less mouth for the British taxpayer to feed, even if recently he probably wasn't eating too much. And it's just a pity his grandkids keep churning out hungry little mouth after hungry little mouth. The most touching tribute came from Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist, Bolt Through the Head, who eulogised that the old doll bludger, quote, never complained that life was tough. 
Gee, wonder why. Tough. Wish the usual suspect had given us an explanation of just what bit of life as a doll bludger living in your collection of castles and palaces is tough. Bet there's plenty, plenty struggling to make ends meet or put a roof over or any sort of roof over their heads who'd like a bit of such tough luck. That lot's doll is a touch larger than the sub-sub-poverty level to which our job keeper has been slashed and... As government and the caring business class tell us, the thriving economy is incapable of withstanding a pay increase for the lowest of low paid. One caring employer, BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, has come up with an inspired proposal to encourage investment in resources in remote parts of True Blue Aussie. Government incentives. A real role for the inefficient public sector, little incentives like handouts, like meeting their costs and tax dodges, well, the usual corporate welfare, allowing the super-efficient private sector to create jobs for those ingrate dole bludgers. Got to say they are super-efficient at getting their snouts in the public trough. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs applauded the state of the economy with Thursday's figures including unemployment at a mere 5.6%. Well, plus those have given up. I can recall when a caring business class treasurer Philip Lynch said a government couldn't survive if unemployment soared to 5%. Friday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, Business Hails Miracle Rebound. Thus, we asked Josh whether the government would now reverse its uh, decision or its submission that the lowest of low-paid workers should not get a pay rise in the lowest of low-paid hearing. Of course not. We must oppose an increase in the minimum wage when the economy is in a recession or a prolonged slowdown. Continuing uncertain global and domestic economic outlook, higher labour costs during this challenging period could present a major constraint to small business recovery and may dampen employment in the sector. God, this economic business is so confusing, isn't it? Those who do understand are not confused by the delicate flower that is the economy. Notice the True Blue Aussie Small Business Profits Association has called for temporary workplace flexibilities introduced during the height of COVID to be made permanent so they can be triggered in future emergencies. Uh, emergencies uh, such as, we asked the primo Peter Strongarm, the workers, are like workers applying for a pay rise. No need to tell you, true to form, the bloody evil unions oppose this sensible example of workplace flexibility. When does pushed ahead not mean pushed ahead, or certainly not mean urgency, like finally, when the Nab Your Money Bank is exposed two years ago, underpaying workers, nabbing its workers' pay dating back to 2012, and at least 130 mil of theft, or, or sorry, of inadvertent underpayment. And this week's report, Nab Your Money Bank has pushed ahead with payments to thousands of current and former unrepaid staff. Pushed ahead? Two years later, wonder what they'd call convenient procrastination. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Mr. Kevin Healy. And don't forget tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for his City Limits. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. 
More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Since the 29th of March, young Yemeni Americans have fasted in Washington, D.C. to demand an end to the war in Yemen. Iman Salah is a 26-year-old teacher and is joined by five others from her group, the Yemeni Liberation Movement. I spoke yesterday with fellow peace activist Kathy Kelly from her home in Chicago who is supporting Emma and her quest for the end of the war. And I asked her first about Emma Salah. Well, I'm feeling very concerned right now. Emma Salah is uh, beginning the 21st day of a fast in which she and her sister Iman is aged 26, and I think her sister is close in age. They've only taken water with electrolytes added to the water. And, Jan, I know from personal experience, the longest I ever went in that kind of a fast was 28 days. And by 28 days, my legs had started to swell up. Walking up an incline like a, a driveway to a house seemed like I was climbing the Alps. So these young women are making a huge sacrifice. And why are they doing that? Because they sense the desperation of people in Yemen. They are both Yemeni Americans, and they want the blockade lifted. They don't believe it's fair for Saudi Arabia to punish Yemeni children who are 2.3 million of them suffering from severe acute malnourishment. 400,000 could die without aid. The World Food Program director, Mr. Beasley, said this is hell. And he's walking through a hospital with no electricity, no lights on because of the blockade preventing fuel from getting into Yemen. So these young women are making a tremendous sacrifice, but in a sense, they can do it by choice. The children in Yemen have no choice. They're being starved to death. Kathy, this war is a long way from the U.S. in geographical terms, but in practical terms, it's another U.S. war in the Middle East. Can you talk about the extent of the complicity of the U.S. in this war, which, as you've said, is devastating the people of Yemen. Well, a major player in the war is Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis don't know how to maintain these sophisticated airplanes that they've purchased, many of them from the United States. They don't know how to install and maintain uh, the kinds of weapon systems, extremely advanced weapon systems that they're using to 
send laser-guided missiles directly into critical infrastructure places all across Yemen and also into civilian homes within the capital and in other places where they have thought they could get the upper hand in a war that they're not getting the upper hand in. The Ansar Allah, uh, often known as the Houthi, have been able now to gain control of probably uh, 60 to 80 percent of the country. So the United States keeps telling Saudi Arabia, don't worry, we will always enable you to defend yourselves. But in fact, the United States has enabled an offensive blockade also by selling to the Saudis these littoral combat ships, which have cut off uh, material going into Yemen by seaports, but also the airport has been shut down since 2016 that would serve uh, 80% of Yemen's population who live near the areas of Sana'a and Hodeidah and these cities that you see that are under such heavy blockade. And then at the United Nations, the United States has gone along with a resolution which was crafted by Saudi Arabia and which only names the Houthis as a responsible warring party that ought to lay down its arms. No mention of how the United States and the UK have every week shipped armaments over to Saudi Arabia. Well, the Houthi aren't going to say now after they've held on for these many years, oh, sure, we're going to disarm ourselves and surrender uh, you know, in a way, they'd be leaving themselves open to genocide. But the U.S. has has not taken action at the United Nations, even though right now, this month, the United States is more or less the pinholder in the Security Council. They could be advancing a meaningful, relevant Security Council decision. But rather, instead, the one that's in place gives the Saudis justification for stopping every single ship and searching it and creating a backlog of uh, dozens and dozens of ships carrying humanitarian aid saying, we can't let these ships go in until we inspect them and make sure there aren't any weapons or weapon components. And meanwhile, you know, the United States is regularly sending ships loaded with weapons to Saudi Arabia and Canada is arming Saudi Arabia and the UK Likewise, and France, and Italy, and Spain. So, you know, of course people in the Islamic world, in the Muslim world, have reason to wonder what kind of forces are we up against when we've 400,000 Yemeni children could be starved to death and they surely would remember what happened to the children of Iraq. Just to give an ex- one example of what's happening there. In your article titled Hunting in Yemen, can you repeat that story? Now, this is a shocking story. The United States has always, since 2002 in its declaration of its war against terrorism, reserved the right, if it detects uh, what they call a high-value target, uh, they can just make an attack directly on that high-value target. And so they have made quite a few attacks in Yemen, saying that they are going after what's called al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula. So it happened in 2017 
that Navy SEALs were ready to make such an attack in a very small, remote town called Al-Real. And they claimed that there were Al-Qaeda operatives in this town. Hard to know what exactly happened. Did somebody tip off the people in that town ahead of time? But when the United States uh, made that attack on January 27th, the townspeople were kind of ready, and they began to fight back when when the Navy SEALs landed in their helicopter. Within minutes, the helicopter was disabled, and it wasn't going to be going anywhere, and gunfire broke out. And so the Navy SEALs called in air support, and the air support, United States airships, helicopter gunships started firing missiles into the homes of people. There were bombs dropped on homes. And so people went running from inside the homes. And uh, one woman, a mother of seven children, had to decide, do I stay in this house that's just been attacked or do I run out? And she took the ladder and uh, she had her infant in her arms. She had her five-year-old son's hand in hers. As soon as she stepped out into the darkness, she must have been detected by a helicopter gunship, and she was gunned down. Uh, that night, nine children under age 10 were killed, and uh, at least six mothers. But in the decision to do this attack in the first place, and a Navy SEAL was killed in the initial rounds of fighting within minutes. His name was Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owen, and I'm sorry for his loss of life, but what about all the others that were killed? Well, in signing off approval of that raid, one general, General Dunford, wrote to another general, General Votel, and he said, okay, everything's all set. This was in an email exchange that finally came out through a Freedom of Information Act between the two generals. The general is saying the the president has signed off on this. The secretary of defense will get a few more needed approvals on Capitol Hill. We'd say all systems are ready to go. And then he just simply wrote, good hunting. Good hunting. As though they're going after prey that aren't human. And then you get the terrible results of that good hunting. Fahim Nelson Al-Amari, six children, five other mothers are killed, and there's no acknowledgement, no awareness, no remorse ever expressed for the loss of those lives. And so this is what has come to light more recently because of the Freedom of Information Act that the Muatana Human Rights Group and others had filed, and the Muatana group has written a very, very telling and difficult-to-read report called Death Falling from the Skies, and it details 12 incidents wherein drone attacks are used to kill civilians, just in Yemen. And how widespread is that knowledge? Well, it's up to the grassroots communities all across the United States now to take that courageous reporting by uh, a woman named Rabia Al-Mutawakal and her spouse, Abdul Rashid, to take this now before the elected legislators, before the media, before the university professors, before the faith-based communities. But I don't see any 
coverage whatsoever in the mainstream news. We do note that the New York Times this past week after President Biden announced that he would uh, have a historic pullout of U.S. troops from, from Afghanistan, Eric Schmidt wrote, well, actually, the uh, special operations and the drone warfare won't be pulled out. It will continue. And so there's kind of an, an acknowledgement, yeah, 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 we've got these drones and we've got these CIA assets and we've got special operations and um, we train special operations people. So the wars continue. It's the most I've seen. Never ending. You know, you talk about Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan, but then at the moment you've got these crippling sanctions on Iran again and Israel not making things better not intending to make things better by bombings in nuclear facilities and also bombing ships in the Red Sea. Right. You know, I, the Israelis damaged uh, the centrifuge machines in Natanz, and from what I read, they might have set back the Iranian enrichment program perhaps six to nine months. And, of course, the Iranians are coming up on elections, and the United States and Israel keep hoping that they're going to accomplish Regime change. They keep trying to tighten. It's like tightening thumbscrews. Tighten this blockade. Make it hurt more for Iranian people. But, you know, when we look at Iraq, there's a lot of comparison that can be made. Of course, the Iranians learned from what happened in Iraq. The uh, Israeli attack in 1981 uh, destroyed Iraq's nuclear power plant at a place called Osirak. So the Iranians learned, don't concentrate all of your power or your technology in one place. So there's a spread all over the country. And the same Israeli general who orchestrated the attack on the Iraq nuclear plant just today said, well, you know, it's trickier, it's more difficult to go after Iran. But that's their strategy to isolate Iran, to punish Iran, to continually make it difficult for the Iranian government to survive. But what the Iraqis told us when we were going over to Iraq to break the sanctions, several of the uh, Iraqi government people would say, look, go back and tell your people you're strengthening the regime here because these civilians, the ordinary, average, everyday people, become too weak to be able to do anything but try to survive, try to find food, try to cope with disease and dirty water. And people get worn down and they don't have the energy or the strength to try to change a regime. Plus the regime can say, look, you know, we're at war. I mean, these people are, they mean business. They're going to wreck us. And so people don't become better able to opt for groups that aren't the hardliners in Iran, they become less able to accomplish regime change. It's a fraught thing. And then, you know, who's going to mention that Israel has at least 45 thermonuclear weapons that they've never declared? And so, you know, there, there's this heavily armed nuclear power on the borders with Iraq and Iran and constantly showing its ability to wage vicious war against Gaza. We have such a lopsided view in the United States of a terribly undereducated population with regard to these issues. And if I may also say, you know, when the United States and Israel talk about they can't, uh, you know, how they cannot allow 
unbridled expansion by Iran in the region. Well, for goodness sakes, look what the Saudis have done exporting their twisted Wahhabist theology to Afghanistan, to Kuwait, to Bahrain, to parts of Yemen. And, and, and this has been an expansion which has caused tremendous death and destruction. And, of course, it's the women and children and the poor who suffer the most. Well, surely. I mean, the Wahhabist conservative theology will certainly keep women under burqas in places like Afghanistan. But, you know, we could look to ground zero here in the United States. And when you remind yourself that September 11th was an attack planned by Saudi operatives in places like Hamburg, Germany, and that 16 of the 19 pilots involved were Saudis, and that this Wahhabist theology is a twisted way of saying, you know, there's only one way to look at the world, and that's our way. And anybody who doesn't subordinate themselves to this extremely conservative religious teaching should be beheaded, should be killed, should be considered an infidel. Well, that's no way to work toward building a better world. And yet, you know, the United States continues to support Saudi Arabia and is now sending $23 billion worth of weapons and drones to the United Arab Emirates, uh, who are closely allied with the Saudis. And, and, and I think that it's all for the sake of greed and land grabs and control of resources. And if you're talking about control of resources, you talk about Afghanistan, 20 years of war by the U.S. and its friends in Afghanistan, on top of years and years of war by the Soviet Union. They're supposed to be leaving by the 11th of September. Do you believe that they will leave? Well, I think it will morph. I think that the Pentagon is going along with Biden's announcement because they realize they don't really have to have all of those bases that they have. They can rely on bases in other countries and drone surveillance and special operations that are completely cloaked in secrecy since the Trump administration relieved the CIA and the special operations groups of any accountability. They don't have to report on what they do or how they do it or who was a casualty or how many people were displaced and maimed. None of that's being reported. And so I think the war will continue, but in a different form. The Taliban will undoubtedly say, well, now we have reason to continue our attacks. Ashraf Ghani uh, appeared on a news talk show that Tariq Zakharia organizes every Sunday, and, and I listened to him, and he seemed to think, well, the United States should continue to support my government because it's the only way forward. But I believe that we ought to look to the United Nations. It's, uh, I think, the only kid on the block in the sense that it's an alternative, and stop any reliance on NATO forces and on U.S. forces or on NATO or U.S. control of humanitarian effort and switch to a United Nations effort to form at least an escrow account into which all of the countries who've waged war against Afghanistan could make contributions, significant big contributions to help with rebuilding, but never put that rebuilding effort under the auspices of the United States, which has proven itself to be woefully 
dismally unable to accomplish what it had said would be the goals of its years of both militarism and supposed nation building. You've obviously been speaking to your young friends in Afghanistan. How are they feeling after this announcement? Well, we have a course right now that I'm coordinating, which includes four of them as course participants. And so every Saturday we hear from them. And they, I think, are sometimes a bit bewildered. You know, they don't want people to see Afghans as people that are hopelessly warlike, because that's certainly not how they see themselves. But they believe that they've spent all their lives being affected by the consequences of wars being waged against Afghanistan and within Afghanistan, enabled by warrior powers elsewhere. So they feel the effects of separation. You know, for two of those young people in this course, the only time they get a chance to talk with each other is on, you know, remote Facebook or, um, you know, WhatsApp type mechanism. And so I, I asked one of them, how long have you been separated from your family now? And it's been five years. They want to celebrate Ramadan, but it's very difficult, you know, both to get enough food to have a big family meal for those that are living in Kabul, but also because sometimes they don't feel like celebrating the situation that's so desperate where they can't see a future for themselves. I admire their strength and their their conviction and believing in nonviolence as they do enormously because they they face a, a bleak future and the possibility of civil war. How are they coping with COVID? Well, that, I'm afraid, doesn't seem to be very high on the list of concerns. And so they tell me that people don't really think much about whether or not to wear masks or practice physical distancing. And uh, two of them have already come down with very, very severe cases, but have recovered. Another had returned to care for his mother. He's studying in India right now, but now has gone back to India, where, of course, they're also facing 24,000 new cases in one day. But you can understand when people are coping with hunger and displacement and almost a total lack of health care, lacks of electricity and fuel and clean water, the COVID just sort of gets added to the list almost as an afterthought. Civil war by whom? Mm -hmm. Who's going to arm who? What will it mean? Well, Afghanistan has a number of warlords right now who control uh, various industries, the timber industry, the ore industries, drug industry, and I'm sorry to say the humanitarian aid industry also. They're almost like mafia groups who have this control, and when they get extra money, they procure armaments to shore themselves up and to try to threaten others who might be their rivals. So there is no shortage of weaponry and ammunition in Afghanistan today. So if a group were to say, we're going to assert control over this area and we're not going to be dominated by this other warlord, that's when you could imagine that armed fighting would break out. I don't think it would be as clear-cut as Taliban fighting against Afghan security forces. I think there are plenty of other armed warlords who, if they find a 
a reason to think that their power is being threatened or diminished would pick up guns. And, and so many of the young people tell me the only job you can get is with some kind of security detail, whether for an armed warlord or for the Afghan local police or the national defense security or the Afghan national defense forces. You could just keep on ticking off all of these different groups. I often look to the emergency surgical centers for victims of war as an exemplary group because they will not allow anyone inside their hospitals or their first aid clinics, and they've got 41 of them all around the country carrying a gun. They are assiduous in making sure that they don't ever seem to be taking a side but that's a pretty unusual group. And and they're right out there in the middle of the worst fighting. But their vehicles marked with this logo, it's an, it looks like the Euro sign almost. It's an, for the emergency. It's got a big E on it. Their vehicles never are attacked because people know these people really haven't taken sides and are a true humanitarian group. Any idea, Kathy, when you and your friends might be able to go and visit your friends in Afghanistan? Mm, You know, uh, at this point, what we have learned is that it's much more difficult to obtain the visa. In days gone by, we never had to try to interact with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Afghanistan, which we wouldn't want to do because we wouldn't want to bring our friends into the scrutiny of any government military ministry. We're actually uh, experiencing a bit of a setback in how we we would even get the paperwork to enter Afghanistan. I'm sure you've got plenty of work here for yourselves, though, without going there. Well, there is plenty to do. I, in fact, just had noticed that the young people trying so desperately to end the blockade of Yemen have their eyes on Vice President Kamala Harris. She would love to become the nominee to succeed Joe Biden, who, you know, in three, close to three years' time, is not likely to be running for re-election as president. And so might it be possible to go to the state coordinators of every group that might be managing a campaign for her and get them to say, okay, I am against this blockade, and perhaps that would work. So you see people just constantly reaching for ways to develop grassroots resistance. But, you know, Jen, this morning I got up and read a book about the Occupy movement. Remember that. And and I was in Australia when it was beginning to really swell all across uh, different parts of the world and across the United States. And who knows, maybe we'll get another grassroots movement that says we can't cooperate with these warlords any longer. Thank you once again, Kathy. Well, thank you, Jen. Thanks so much for listening to all of that, as you so often do, and for staying on top of all these issues. And we sure wish the Australian grassroots movement the very best. Kathy Kelly from Chicago speaking on behalf of their new group, To End All Wars. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. On the program last week, Natalie Lowry from Aidwatch spoke about the campaign against Australian Linus Corporation's plan for a radioactive waste dump in Kwantan, Malaysia.
She spoke about her work on the campaign against lioness in Malaysia, together with an Australian-Malaysian activist, and of course that person is well known to Tuesday Home Time, Lee Tan. I also spoke with Lee, beginning with her allegations of deceptions by the Lioness Corporation. My meaning of deception is the greenwashing that Linus has been doing and also the over-optimistic projection of its uh, profitability. Linus, I mean, for rare earth elements, there are different, you know, there's 17 elements. Some are classified as light rare earth and others are classified as um, heavy rare earth. And in the light rare earth, the only thing that are of commercial value and in market demand is what we call didymium or elements called neodymium, praseodymium, both of which are needed in uh, making powerful permanent magnets for use in um, um, battery, yeah, powerful battery, and also in electric cars and so on and so forth. So, but with the case of Linus, about 70% of the uh, uh, rails in the ore are actually cerium and lanthanum, and none of them actually fetch much money, and that's why Linus hasn't been able to pay back the loan that he has taken from Japan. And in fact, because of that, the Japanese government has to extend the loan term to something like 10, 15 years, uh, and also lower the interest from a commercial loan to more or less like a development loan, or we call them soft loan, low interest. That's one um, area of deception. Another is the greenwashing. I mean, if you look at Linus' website, it's all about, uh, you know, uh, sustainable, green, this and every other thing. I mean, look at the mess it's created for Malaysia. All you need is to Google down, to look, uh, you know, on, on the map, to look at the, the way it has managed, or <laughs> mismanaged its waste. I mean, we're talking about radioactive waste, you know, piled up, yeah, uncovered. There was only one which is covered with uh, a plastic. That was when they've been under review by the previous Malaysian government. Um, apart from that, you know, there's, there's really virtually mismanagement of uh, a hazardous waste in a re- relatively populated area and letting, you know, contaminated water flow into the environment and into uh, a river uh, which local people have been using both for fishing and, you know, children for recreational purposes and so on and so forth. So, you know, they're not green at all, nor clean or just. What's in it for the Japanese lenders who keep giving them more benefits? Mm. Yep. Well, basically, the plant in Malaysia wouldn't have got up without the Japanese financial support. And Japan did that because in 2010, it got embroiled in a territorial plane uh, conflict with China over the Senkaku Island. Japan feared that China will use, would use uh, rare earth 
as a weapon to force it to relinquish control of the Sinkaku Island. It was because of that geopolitical tension that Japan decided it needs uh, alternative supply of rare earth uh, oxide. And that's why Japan, you know, extended that loan to Linus. Really, China hasn't actually ceased any supply to Japan or even U.S., but the mining industry is, and and also um, some of the governments like that in the USA are really playing up the fact that China is a sole supplier of rare earth until recently. And in reality, China became a sole predominant supplier of rare earth because of the pollution. No country in the world would develop their own rare earth um, supply chain because of the toxicity associated with the processing of um, uh, this mineral. Once upon a time, USA was the biggest exporter of rare earth elements. But because of the radioactive waste and, you know, loads of it, U.S. decided to export its um, rare earth concentrate, you know, unrefined, unprocessed, to China and pushing the pollution and the contamination to country that has, you know, kind of lesser regulatory control or enforcement. And Linus is doing that. And, you know, in that process, technological transfer has happened, which enabled China to rise up to be a very powerful supplier of uh, rare earth minerals and also the downstream um, high-tech products. Just go back to what you were saying about deception a moment ago. If you look at the business sections of newspapers like The Australian or The Age, and you see these glowing reports about yes. the future of Linus. Yes, absolutely. That's the thing. I mean, like, it, because Linus has been one of the major non-Chinese supplier of rare earth, yeah, they're getting a lot of attention. And most journalists do not look into details. But when you actually look at the composition of the uh, mineral, you know that it is not that lucrative. And that's also another reason why other countries have not, you know, quickly set up rare earth production because of, you know, the concentration of um, the commercially valuable rare earth is usually very low. And because, and, and also the processing is hazardous and the waste management is very costly. And it is no surprise, you know, why Linus has chosen Malaysia, because it didn't have to comply with strict regulatory requirements and it's not, you know, under as much scrutiny as it would have in Australia. And plus, the labor cost is very cheap and it is, you know, um, enjoying a 12-year tax holiday in Malaysia. If the business is so lucrative, Linus would have paid off his Japanese loan ages ago, but is still dragging his feet trying to um, uh, meet the loan repayment. Um, that explains, you know, a lot about the financial viability. And that's also a deliberate anti-Chinese 
sentiment, I think, by many of the financial writers. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of um, a mob mentality where they all just write, you know, along the same line without going into in-depth in investigative uh, look into what Linus is really worth. You've been looking at depths into this proposed radioactive waste dump of Linus. You say it's full of red flags. What are those red flags? Yeah, firstly, the dump is located in a rainforest, uh, which is the water catchment for the city of Kuantan. It actually will, the, the waste or contamination will eventually pollute three different riverine systems, including the, the Kuantan River, which flows into the city of Kuantan. And, you know, these river systems provide uh, drinking water for the city of Kuantan. And that's really unacceptable. And uh, secondly, Malaysia is a wet tropical country. To locate radioactive waste dump, you know, of massive amount of radioactive waste, we're talking about one million cubic meter or something like 1.5 million wet weight of radioactive waste. That's huge amount for a little country like Malaysia. As uh, Dr. Jim Green from Friends of the Earth Melbourne stated in his submission on the um, environmental impact assessment, he said in Australia, the government struggling with um, trying to find a location to house 6,000 cubic meter of uh, radioactive waste. And yet, you know, in, uh, in Malaysia, Linus is kind of, um, you know, getting state government approval for like, you know, like um, 90% more in the rainforest condition. And the contract to build the radioactive dump is uh, awarded to a company with links to the Southern of Bahang with no experience dealing with um, radioactive waste or, you know, com supposedly complex engineering requirements. But of course, you know, the design, if you look at it, it's not complex at all and it's unsuitable for the kind of radioactive waste Linus is um, proposing to dump in the, in the area. Yeah, there's, there's many, many other issues where the EIA actually only look at immediate threat and not looking at long-term problems, not looking at extremities of conditions of uh, climate change, uh, extreme flood ero uh, soil erosion and landslide. I mean, the modeling are all done under very optimistic assumption, which is a problem. As we know, most of the time radioactive exposure happens through, you know, unexpected and accidental uh, releases. And in, in, in this case, you know, they're expecting three millimeter garbage bag grade plastic liner to last 10,000 years, which is a joke, a very dangerous joke. Because, you know, under tropical condition and also in, in, and, and, Linus type of uh, waste, which is very, fairly acidic, those plastic wouldn't last, you know, 10 years. Yes, I mean, there are many more 
float with the uh, proposal. The, we are not sure, you know, what the Malaysian government is thinking, but we are very, very concerned. The environmental impact statement has been sent to the authorities. Who are the authorities who are going to say yay or nay? Uh, the Department of Environment or the Ministry of Environment. We don't know when they will say that, but they have uh, basically displayed the do- documents submitted by Linus for public viewing. And viewing, I mean literally. People are not allowed to download the document from the website. They're only available for viewing. So, you know, for 1,000 pages worth of document, you can't actually, I mean, you have to spend hours and hours looking at the screen and not really able to do quick search or, uh, you know, cut and paste to help if, if your analysis, which is not really a very transparent style of uh, public consultation. The final issue, really, Lee, is that you've got an Australian company exporting its radioactive waste to Malaysia. Yeah, you can say that, but it's actually more than exporting the radioactive waste. It's exporting the whole hazardous processing uh, operation to Malaysia and leaving the radioactive waste behind. In a wet tropical country that has got limited space for the huge amount of radioactive waste, with, um, you know, a, a government known for its um, uh, weak governance or corrupt practices and, and also probably limited technical capabilities to, to understand the hazard, uh, least of all to manage it adequately. Linus is now looking at um, building a leaching and cracking plant in Kalgoorlie because the previous government has put in its condition that by 2023, Linus can no longer bring in radioactive bearing, uh, lanternite or, or, uh, concentrate into Malaysia. Um, so there's a proposal to construct a plant in Kalgoorlie and to our disappointment and a bit of a surprise, the WA EPA seems to be fast-tracking the approval uh, process as well. Um, we, we're still watching brief on that one, but it is actually very worrying if um, the WA EPA does not adhere to its you know, normal kind of um, high standards of um, monitoring of uh, this kind of processing uh, plant. More work for you, Lee Tan. Oh, dear. (laughs) I can do without. (laughs) You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Three West Papua Tree. Three West Papua Tree. Before the genocide, a celebration of West Papuan culture, history and struggle. Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. And exhibitions of archival photos from West Papua, pre-Indonesian occupation, cultural artifacts and contemporary art by West Papuan artists. Lobe Wangai, 
Jeffrey Jikwa, and other members of West Papuan community here in Melbourne. Traditional West Papuan food from Joyce Kitchen and music from the Sego and Jill Kogoya. Join us for the opening night for food, music and dance at Basement Gallery, Collingwood Yards, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, Launch Party, Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. Or a few exhibitions Sunday, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Collingwood Yards. Before the genocide, find us on Facebook. A 3CR support. How many times have you heard the government of this country talk about Christian values? We live in a Christian country. The Lord's Prayer is read at the beginning of each day of Parliament and that a significant number of the coalition are prominent in the prayer group. Yet it's these same men and women who have allowed people who have fled war and possible torture to languish in what can only be called concentration camps, and in more recent times locked in hotel rooms until they either agree to return to that situation they escaped from, or in many cases suffer severe mental illness and possibly suicide. That's just one aspect of Australia's failing its international and indeed moral obligations to protect human rights. And we've just marked the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and it's the continuing deaths in custody, 470 since the Commission's final report and five in just over one month. Noting that the Commission made 339 recommendations a few have been implemented. And the final area is the nation's counter-terrorism law. But there's much, much more. But the world is watching and Australia's human rights failings have been seriously exposed. To talk about these important issues of the lack of human rights in Australia, I spoke with Spencer Zifkak, the Alan Myers Professor of Law at the ACU, a former president of Liberty Victoria, and a director of the Accountability Roundtable. I began by pointing to the fact that human rights in Australia has been a concern of his for a long time and asked him if he could spend a couple of minutes talking about his previous work prior to his present position at ACU. Well, I guess my um, human rights career began uh, when I was at university and at that time I was uh, involved heavily in student politics. It was the time of the um, Vietnam War, conscription, uh, the Whitlam government and so on. It was a very exciting time but there were really deep issues to be considered, in particular Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and that had the effect of exposing the nature of governmental decision-making whether or not uh, a nation like Australia should be involved in uh, foreign conflicts and so on. So I took off from that point to become um, very concerned about the lack of accountability of governments for making decisions that had enormous on the Australian population. And I think that's probably where uh, it all began. Uh, But much more recently, I've been involved in a number of human rights related um, organisations. I was uh, 
decade uh, the vice president of the Australian section of the international non-government organisation, the International Commission of Jurists, and conducted a number of international human rights missions on their behalf. I was um, for a couple of years president of Liberty Victoria, one of the country's leading uh, human rights organisations. It's been an interest of mine for a very long time uh, and I've also been at the centre of debates about whether or not Australia should have um, a Bill of Rights um, and was in, involved in the four-year campaign for an Australian Bill of Rights um, from 2005 and 2009, which almost got there but was defeated by the Prime Minister of the time at the last minute, unfortunately. That's a few examples of um, commitments during my career to the broader project of um, protecting and advancing uh, international human rights. Well, today we're focusing on a, an article that you wrote for Pearls and Irritations and the, the focus is Australia's human rights failings exposed. The UNHCR, in particular the Office of the UN High Commission on Human Rights, perhaps you could first explain yeah. the role and responsibility of these two bodies. Uh, we're talking here about two different bodies. The first is the UN Human Rights Council. It's the central decision-making body on global performance in relation to human rights within the framework of the United Nations. So it's probably the most important global human rights body in the world. The second organisation to which I refer in the article is the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. That's also an office uh, which is linked with the UN Human Rights Council, but it's a little bit different because uh, the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights is, is not um, an organisation within the UN, but it's a position within the United Nations, and the High Commissioner on Human Rights is the person with the uh, most significant responsibility for the protection and advancement of human rights within the framework of the United Nations system. So we're talking about a recent five-year review of Australia's role in protecting human yeah. rights. Is that a normal process? Yeah. it's a normal process. Uh, and it's a really interesting process, actually. Uh, every uh, five years, every country in the world must provide a report to the UN Human Rights Council on its uh, performance in um, the observance of uh, fundamental human rights those human rights being contained essentially and most relevantly in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The reason it's really interesting is because most other UN human rights bodies don't have any authority to bring a nation before them to examine their human rights unless they've signed on to a relevant international human rights treaty. But this new process of the Human Rights Council, which is called Universal Periodic Review, requires every member state of the United Nations, that is all 94 countries who are member states of the United Nations, to um, turn up um, and be questioned on their human rights performance in the previous five years. So this is a normal process and Australia's turn has come up this year and the first hearings in relation to Australia occurred in January of this year. The Australian government, in the first instance, presents uh, its case, um, appears before the Human Rights Council to argue that it has uh, done well in the past five years in relation to the protection of human rights. 
uh, and the Australian government did that in January of this year. But at the same time, uh, as with every member state of the United Nations, it's not just the Human Rights Council listening to what the government's got to say about human rights, but the Human Rights Council also listens to its own human rights investigatory bodies and human rights treaty bodies and takes into account the work of those human rights treaty bodies and uh, human rights related commissioners in questioning uh, each country and in this case Australia about its performance uh, with respect to human rights in the previous um, five years. That's what's happening with Australia right at the moment. And what are the principal areas of concern that they've identified? The principal areas of concern have been pretty consistent now over the last three times that Australia has appeared before the Human Rights Council, and there are three of them. And they are, um, as one might expect, uh, the Human Rights Council and uh, a companion organisation called the United Nations Human Rights Committee expressed continuous concern about three matters with respect to Australia. The first is the uh, government's uh, punitive treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. The second is Australia's treatment of its indigenous peoples. And the third, which is a little bit newer, but nevertheless uh, really important, is the uh, now the breadth of um, Australia's um, counter-terrorism legislation, which in many respects runs contrary to principles to which Australia is committed under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Those are the three major areas. Starting with the refugee and asylum seekers, what are yeah. the main issues for the UN? The main issues for the UN are, as you might expect, uh, the fact that asylum seekers and indeed refugees have, have been subject, subjected to arbitrary, mandatory and prolonged detention um, during the course of the process of determining whether they are genuine refugees and therefore whether they might be admitted into Australia. And this has been enormously damaging, this process. Applicants um, for refugee status, or as we call them, asylum seekers, uh, have been detained for um, up to seven years pending the resolution of their claims for asylum, which is frankly um, an outrage. These people have committed no crime. They've come into the country um, fully in accordance with the principles of the International Refugee Convention. The European Refugee Convention places an obligation on countries, including Australia, who've signed up to the Refugee Convention to um, consider seriously uh, claims of persecution by people who have arrived here and applied for asylum, that is, persecution in their home countries and to determine whether or not those claims of persecution are valid and whether or not, therefore, a person should get refugee status. But the process has been incredibly long. Um, seven years in uh, immigration detention without arrest, without trial, without any conviction, um, but nevertheless seven years of detention while this process goes on and on and on and is continuously delayed is within the definition of arbitrary detention, global human rights language, far too long.
many of the committees, the human rights committees that are attached to the United Nations have continuously expressed deep concern about the prolonged detention of individuals. Uh, and then the problem, the problem became worse um, a little bit more recently when detention was not just uh, in more or less reasonable detention centres in Australia, but in appalling conditions uh, in offshore detention in Nauru and um, Manus Island. So that's the major source of concern with respect to the refugee issue. We've had um, six people dying in mandatory detention on Manus Island and Nauru. Six suicides and uh, 12 asylum, asylum seekers have died. The conditions in which refugees kept have been extraordinarily harsh. People have denied, been denied legal representation, contact with family and friends. They've suffered sexual assaults by security guards and acts of violence from other detainees. The situation is absolutely appalling. It breaches almost every convention on human rights uh, existent in the international arena, and yet uh, the Australian government has continued to act cruelly in this respect now for a very long time and despite extensive and serious international criticism is not the government has not changed its policy in this respect so it's a deplorable um, series of policies that the government has uh, initiated in this respect when does deep concern go further or can't they go further internationally um, they can't go further as i've said to you there are many um, international human rights treaties have been um, <coughs> violated within Australia and offshore now with respect to the detention and processing of refugees and asylum seekers. No fewer than seven different international human rights treaties uh, have been infringed by the Australian government, but despite the fact that um, serious findings have been made in relation to Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, those committees they can only make recommendations to the countries that uh, they criticise. They have no power to enforce any of their decisions, which is a shame, but that's the international law works. So insofar as uh, the criticisms of the UN work, they work uh, by uh, having um, pressure from United Nations agencies, other countries and um, a whole series of regional human rights organisations um, making these criticisms, raising their voices and making it clear that despite Australia's protestations of being a human rights observing country, in this particular respect, Australia has been a dramatic failure. Deep concerns and shaming doesn't seem to make any difference to successive Australian governments. No, that is true, uh, and that is appalling. But uh, the Australian government, and you know, I include here um, both Labor and coalition governments, um, both of them have behaved in precisely the same way, although the most recent uh, coalition government since the Tony Abbott government um, has uh, dealt extraordinarily cruelly, uh, and indeed uh, one could say... Um, violently in relation to uh, refugees. But as I've said to you before, those international conventions are conventions which Australia has signed and which it's agreed to observe, but which plainly uh, it has acted in straightforward contradiction. To, uh, but there's no power in the UN to actually enforce any of the decisions that are made by its human rights mechanisms. There you have it. 
the Australian government, for domestic political reasons, thinks it's a good policy to treat people cruelly um, and to tell lies about them, as in the uh, children overboard situation, and further lies about the conditions on uh, Manus Island uh, and uh, Nauru. But they figure that it's still to their political benefit to act this way uh, rather than acting in the humane way that um, many of us in this field wish that they would. What has the United Nations decided or condemned the Australian government on Aboriginal issues? Well, Aboriginal issues are um, also, uh, as anybody who lives here might expect, uh, a source of concern for um, the United Nations, which has a responsibility to oversee the global observance of human rights. There are several things in relation to Indigenous people that are significant. Indigenous people are, as is well known, dramatically overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So, for example, in, uh, very, until very recently, the situation is pretty much similar now, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people comprise 28% of Australia's adult prison population. Let me say that again. 28% of Australia's adult prison population, but the Indigenous population of Australia is only 3% of Australia's population. So these are disconcertingly high rates of incarceration, which have included the incarceration of women and Indigenous children. The United Nations uh, has expressed continuous concern uh, with respect to um, the imprisonment of um, young Aboriginal children uh, aged between 10 and 14, which also happens uh, on a regular basis, particularly in the Northern Territory and in Western Australia. And 30 years ago, we had an inquiry into the deaths of Indigenous people in custody. I had an interview in the, on the ABC on the radio this morning by one of the commissioners in the inquiry 30 years ago, and he said the situation hasn't uh, improved at all. There have now been some 480 deaths in custody since the inquiry into the deaths, into the deaths of Indigenous people occurred 30 years ago. So the, we haven't taken one step forward uh, in relation to this matter over a period of three decades and that's a deep worry for the international community uh, and is expressed regularly through the UN's human rights mechanisms. Recently the Law Council of Australia in a submission with respect to uh, the incarceration of Indigenous people found that in 2018 Indigenous children were 21 times more likely than non-Indigenous children to be in detention on any average night in this country. So we have very serious problems uh, in relation to um, the incarceration of Indigenous peoples. And of course, there are a whole host of health problems that afflict the Indigenous community. Children of Indigenous uh, heritage are also still profoundly disadvantaged in uh, the education systems of the states around the country. We have a long way to go on uh, making any uh, sensible commitment to treating Indigenous people uh, equally. And of course, there's the shrinking of all our human rights, our civil liberties, due to the increasing anti-terror laws. And that's been going on, what, for 20 years now? Yeah, since September 11, uh, Jan. Yeah. In fact, your listeners may not know, but it is one extraordinary fact that Australia has more pieces of counter-terrorism law on its Commonwealth statute books than any other Western country. 
Look, counterterrorism policies are very popular. Nobody wants um, terrorists to um, engage in a deathly activity anywhere in this country, and uh, that's completely appropriate. But the counterterrorism laws that have been initiated uh, and legislated in Australia go, in many respects, far beyond what might reasonably be called necessary and appropriate for to uh, ensure that terrorist activities uh, do not occur here. But we have the most draconian counter-terrorism laws of any Western democracy in the world. Do you understand why? They're popular. Yes, but they must be popular in other countries as well. Yeah, other, they are uh, popular in other countries as well. Um, we have just been uh, more sweeping in the way that counter-terrorism laws have been implemented and framed in this country than in almost any other country in the world. Now, why is that? Uh, I'm not sure. But we have uh, ministers like uh, Peter Dutton, who, on the one hand, I'll give him some credit, I'm sure, is deeply concerned about uh, the prospect of terrorist attacks in Australia and wants to prevent them. But at the same time, there needs to be a balance between uh, the nature and content of counter-terrorism laws and the continuing commitment of the country to civil rights and civil liberties. But the government hasn't got this balance right. Civil liberties are being swept aside in favour of uh, these sweeping uh, counter-terror laws. So we have progressively lost uh, many of our rights as the breadth and extent of counter-terrorism laws has uh, eventuated over the last couple of decades. You've spoken about the three principal areas of human rights concerns, but there's a lot more, isn't there? A lot more, uh, and the Human Rights Committee of the UN have done a really good job, as has the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, in identifying a whole host of other areas that are of significant concern. So, for example... The Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination at the UN has uh, recently expressed deep concern with respect to um, continuing discrimination against Australia's Indigenous peoples. It's expressed concern that racism, racial discrimination and xenophobia um, is increasing in Australia rather than uh, decreasing. That's a source of concern not only for UN Human Rights Committees, uh, but it should be a concern for um, the Australian Human Rights Commission, every state equal opportunity commission, and for every Australian. The advance of racism um, is a seriously uh, detrimental occurrence that has become worse and worse for reasons I don't fully understand, but it's clear that um, this um, racial discrimination is worse now than it has been for race a very long time. The Human Rights Committee also um, has picked up on the deplorable violence that occurs in Australia, and in particular domestic violence against women. The Human Rights Committee and the... uh, United Nations Discrimination Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women has been very concerned about domestic violence, general violence, discrimination against women and the increasingly widespread sexual harassment of women in the workplace. And uh, we've all known about this over the last six or seven weeks because widespread sexual harassment and perhaps even um, sexual uh, criminal activity has been engaged in in the Parliament of Australia itself. The committee, the Human Rights Committees of the UN are spot on in um, indicating that they are concerned about, again, this worrying uh, trend which violates uh, Australia's commitments uh, under international human rights law. 
and our commitment to the rights of children? We're pretty good on the rights of children overall, but um, there is a shocking exception to that general statement, which is what we now know has been the widespread sexual abuse of children, particularly in religious organisations. So we now know that there are thousands and thousands of uh, children uh, were um, sexually abused by Catholic priests and clergy and other denominations over a period of two decades. So the UN is onto that, and we've had a broad-ranging inquiry in relation to it as well. So one hopes that uh, this will uh, get better, and we've certainly done a lot of work through relevant inquiries in making recommendations about how this might be attacked. So uh, let's hope we do better at that, but it's early days yet, and uh, the recommendations of the recent Commonwealth inquiry into this uh, have not yet been fully implemented. Um, and I note uh, that there will soon be other inquiries into sexual abuse in, against children by the Catholic clergy, um, other clergy, and some um, religiously-based uh, non-governmental organisations, and two or three other states. As I said at the beginning, the heading for your article is Australia's Human Rights Failings Seriously Exposed. Is it just a fact that these a government or government representatives can turn up at these meetings every five years, get exposed, as you, as you pointed out, and just go home and say, well, we'll just keep doing what we've been doing. If you read the Australian government's submissions on uh, the uh, country's human rights record, as they are written for the uh, Human Rights Council, you would imagine that um, we are paragons of virtue as far as human rights are concerned. But that's the nature of um, governments defending their interests and reputations. But the Human Rights, Human rights Council and um, Human Rights Committees are having none of it. Um, and so we uh, do get um, all of these factors about which I've spoken. And uh, thank you for asking about them, which continue in Australia. In some respects, we get a little bit better with respect to the rights of children and as a result of Commonwealth inquiry into the sexual abuse of children. That will result in certain improvements and I'm certain that the state royal commissions in relation to the same issue will result in certain such a long way to go in relation to Indigenous people and the continued widespread systemic discrimination against Indigenous people in almost every aspect of work and life in Australia. You know, one of the other um, issues that the Human Rights Committees at the UN have picked up on, quite properly so, concerns Australia's performance in relation to the protection of the global environment. A couple of the Human Rights Committees have expressed increasing alarm at the increasing carbon dioxide emissions and uh, Australia's continuing commitment to coal as a significant contributors to the problem of global climate change. And um, nobody in Australia could fail to appreciate um, that uh, we are way behind the rest of the Western democratic world in uh, tackling climate change. In fact, governments, including the current one, still largely uh, deny the existence, or if not the existence, then the importance of um, climate change, um, although how they can continue to do so in the face of um, the bushfires we had uh, last year, um, the floods that we're currently having, um, the uh, increasing cyclone activities that uh, we have, the uh, erratic nature of the weather that we're experiencing in a whole range of different ways, um, we can now see these things. We experience them right across the country, but the government just 
chooses to shut its eyes to the matter uh, in favour of uh, new coal mines and similarly destructive activity, albeit um, with the good intention of keeping hold of uh, the jobs of um, people who will work in the industry at the moment. But um, those jobs can be uh, transferred relatively easily to renewable energy, but the Australian government just won't go there. In fact, it's uh, ironical that um, most of the major... um, Corporations in Australia are now on board with um, action to tackle climate change, but the government's still lagging way behind. Well, finally, Spencer, are other countries closing their eyes to what Australia does? Uh, Not really to what Australia does, no, no. Other countries, through these UN mechanisms that I've been talking about, have been very critical of uh, Australia's human rights records. Germany's been very critical of us. France has been very critical of us. The Scandinavian countries have been very critical of us. Canada has been very critical of us. Uh, The United States is not quite so critical of us because um, there are a lot of the problems I've just spoken about in relation to climate change and a whole host of these other issues uh, are matters that the United United States uh, has not dealt with and, in fact, whose record has got worse under the Trump administration, but looking as if it's get a bit better under the Biden administration. Um, but uh, the human rights abuses to which I've been referring uh, are also very commonly experienced in the United States, so um, they are a bit less willing to criticise us on the grounds that um, they are frequently criticised in the international community as well. Can we hope that things might change or... Is it got to be a change of government for things to well, change? Oh, look, I think in Australia it's got to be a change of government for things to change. We've had seven years of government since uh, the Abbott government came to power. As we were discussing at the beginning of this interview, I've been involved in work designed to protect and advance international human rights for 30 years, and I can't remember a time in which... Uh, Australia has performed worse than it is uh, performing with respect to the protection of human rights right now. So um, we've gone backwards uh, under successive Liberal National Coalition governments. One can only hope if there is a change of government that uh, we might uh, improve in the way that it's beginning to look like uh, the US will improve under the Biden administration. Okay, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been speaking with Spencer Zifkak, the Ellen Myers Professor of Law at ACU, the Australian Catholic University. And if you'd like to read his paper in Pearls and Irritations, it's titled Australia's Human Rights Failings Seriously Exposed. 3CR. Friday the 14th of May. National Walk Safely to School Day. Walking regularly to school is a great way to exercise. But until they're 10, children must always hold an adult's hand when crossing the road. Friday the 14th of May is the 22nd anniversary of National Walk Safely to School Day. If you can't walk all the way, combine a walk with public transport. If you must use a car, leave it a good distance from school and walk the rest of the way. And remember, active kids are smarter kids. Find us at walk.com.au, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. A 3CR supporter.
for a long time now on Tuesday Home Time, we've been talking about the total disregard of an Australian company to the health of communities and their environment in a developing country, and that's Linus Corporation with their plant at Kwantan in Malaysia. One we haven't discussed for quite a while is another Australian company, Oceana Gold, and its gold mine at the Dipio in northern Philippines. Even before the mine came into operation, the people in the area were suffering human rights abuses. Now, many years later, human rights abuses still have not abated. Indeed, according to a coalition of Australian organisations, Oceanic Gold is also misleading the market, their shareholders and the Australian public. For further information, I spoke with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy and asked him first to talk briefly about the history of the mine, how it got started and what the local people were told would happen. It goes back a long way, probably to 1990 or 1991. Some Australian uh, geological people who were mining people, but more on the exploration side, you know, determined there was this gold deposit. They set about trying to uh, you know, develop it. I would call this a really tiny mining company, but they they, uh, made the right connections in the Philippines and they even helped draft a a new mining act, which was uh, adopted in 1995 in the Philippines, uh, which would enable foreign investors to, you know, 100% operate a mine. Up until then, that was not, not possible under the laws of the country. They got the first approval under this law, even before the law was promulgated. So it was... 1994, they've got number one financial and technical assistance agreement. These agreements go for 25 years, so in 2019 it expired. But that's bringing us up to now in a hurry. But in between, there was a lot of resistance from the people living around the DDPO ore body. They were a dislocated group of Indigenous people from another part of the Cordillera who had sort of been forced off their... uh, original land by a dam that's in the 1970s and they trekked across the mountains and found this area of of land which wasn't being used by anybody so they developed it for rice growing mainly uh, some fruits and things like that and they they had a viable community based, based on the economy there and then the company arrived they're different names you know I'm pretty sure the first one was Arimco then it became Climax, Arimco, and then Climax, and uh, now it's Oceana Gold. There was violence at various points, you know, around the late 90s. I first went there myself in 2001 uh, and met the community and just talked about how mining operates in Australia, and they, they had a lot of questions <coughs> about the promises the company was making. But the company basically did buy land off people. You can see that titles were not really there but um, the community was divided it was a very low cost operation for the company really to buy that uh, land they paid for a midwife they paid for a teacher to be located in the community that's also a very low cost thing to do and then uh, they proceeded to um, demolish houses uh, of people who had sold to them without any warning, you know. So one day people just turned up with bulldozers and hammers and uh, 
and tools and started smashing these places down. So there was some violence there when people protested and uh, one person was killed by the security guards. This type of thing went on and on. In 2013, that was when they actually started mining. So you can see it was a very long time between even the approval of 1994 and and 2013. And they only had six years to mine before their FTAA expired. You know, they also did another thing in there because you know, in, in all those years, the price of gold went up and down a lot. Right there at the point of uh, mining, they just sort of doubled the size of the mine and got away with that. I don't, it's, hard, it's hard for me to understand how regulators can do that. Uh, so that meant a massive increase in the tailings and there was a massive uh, impact on the, the local streams, pollution and so on. So there's, there has been a significant impact on the agriculture that's continued around the mine site and people's health. When the FTAA expired in June 2019, the uh, local government, that is like a municipal level, and as well as the provincial government, opposed uh, any renewal of the FTAA. And the people, the community, put up a barricade to stop the mine operation continuing because the company said it had an approval to continue mining, which is just, I think, a stretch of the, the law in the Philippines by a lot. And when the pandemic struck last year, barricade had to be, you know, physically distanced and so on. And at that point, you know, a big strong force of police and uh, company trucks uh, broke through. So that's another incident, uh, of a, really a violation of human rights uh, you could document there. So that's where we are now. It's 2021. The FTAA has not been extended. The company has this, you know, one of its tactics was to take about, I think, a thousand people, I don't know where they all came from, to, down to Manila in front of the palace of uh, the president to demand that the FTAA be extended. Um, and then the company issued media statements in December saying that they had uh, community support for the mine, including from the indigenous people. And this is why we've issued a media statement uh, last week saying that uh, this is a false statement by Oceana Gold. So it's a false statement to the Australian Securities Exchange. And uh, we're calling on the various regulators in Australia to take action on this false report. I think it's a very fraught situation still in, at the DPO itself. And of course, one of the headquarters of Oceanic Gold is here in Melbourne, 357 Collins Street. There were monthly demonstrations out there for quite a while. Perhaps they should recommence. Yes, but, uh, the company's moved its headquarters to Brisbane. <laughs> So, yeah, they can recommence in Brisbane. <laughs> yeah, and we, of course, had the pandemic uh, impact here in Australia, so holding protests for a while had been impossible too. But now the conditions are better and uh, it's, it's viable to organise uh, physical protests here too. So um, I don't really know what uh, individuals are doing in Brisbane, but you know, we, we've, uh, as a group of organisations with a concern on... Uh, the Philippines and uh, human rights and the environment have issued this statement. We are discussing how to put more pressure on the company in Brisbane. How are you going to go about that? Well, I think that there's, uh, again, our organisations have got some uh, in 
people in Brisbane and we need to have a meeting convened in Brisbane to discuss what to do. It's up to them to, to decide their own tactics and so on. But uh, yeah, there, there's uh, plenty of potential for that to happen. Is Oceana Gold better or worse than the other mining company that's operating in the Philippines? I just described to you, you know, a, a story of uh, continuous events of violence and abuse. It's not a good story. And to compare it to other places, uh, you know, you can find similar stories in other places, uh, in Mindanao and other parts of Luzon. I, I would say the Didipio story is a relatively small it's a relatively small mine and uh, it's a relatively small company. You know, I would call it a sort of a C-grade C Australian mining company. Its, it's capitalisation is a few hundred million dollars, whereas, say, BHP is many billions of dollars. Uh, BHP contracts to a lot of nickel mines in, in Mindanao. But, you know, I, I think that this type of uh, cavalier regard for the basic rights of the community, for the environmental impact is normal in the Philippines. It has been the focus of a lot of community campaigning for many years, many decades actually. I would say that the communities in different parts of the country have really slowed down the mining expansions which have been proposed. Occasionally there's been you know, really very severe repression as a result, but the communities demonstrate really strong unity and, and uh, resilience uh, in terms of saying no to things which will just destroy their, their country uh, forever. You know, I could just say that there was a proposal to build a dam, for instance, in uh, Panay Island. It's been going since 2011, and the indigenous people there had been saying, no, this would really flood our lands. Many of our villages would be flooded and we've got nowhere to go, and it's our land. You know, we, we say no. And um, at the end of December last year, the military, you know, really hit hit them, and they, they killed nine leaders and arrested another 16 um, in one coordinated raid, series of raids, one in the early hours of the morning of that day. You know, the people are reeling from that type of uh, attack, but they they haven't said, you know, change their attitude to the dam. You know, if anything, it's hardened people. And I think that happens all over the place, that, uh, you know, when when uh, either private security guards or the military come in backing up a, a mining company or a logging company, or in this case a dam project, you know, the, the, um, the people unite more. Just finally, Peter, is it a little bit different with Oceana Gold that the local officials, the local provincial government actually are on the side of the people against this mine? Well, it does help because, you know, there's various police forces in the Philippines, you know, so there's a provincial police and a municipal police as well as the national police. So if the provincial government is on the side of the people that have been on this issue for decades, you know, it doesn't use coercion against the people. And, uh, the, uh, and it provides a political platform for the voice of the people. <laughs> the Philippine National Police are there. Unfortunately, I've met them there. But they are also a bit restrained uh, because it's a remote place. Company is, is small. You know, so there's not so much political clout, for instance. Uh, the Australian government has probably been lobbying all along for 
the uh, Oceana Gold uh, project and for this FTAA renewal, but you know it's a relatively small small company in Australian terms and doesn't have political clout. So um, yeah, you don't see too much use of the even Philippine national. Although, as I said, the company's own private security guard, Civil Violence, and the PNP have been there. The reason that, that the provincial government is opposing is that the, the company's never paid any taxes to them. But it's, of course, them who have to build the roads and maintain them and so on. The company says, oh, well, there's a, there's a dis- dispute between the Nueva Vizcaya provincial government and the uh, uh, Isabella provincial government or the, the, another neighbouring provincial government and therefore we won't pay any of them. So that's how they play it. Uh, I've, I've met the provincial governor in uh, Nueva Vizcaya twice myself, which shows you know the openness of the, the governor to any Australians coming there to support the community. Okay, thank you very much again, Peter. Thank you for the interview, Jen. And many thanks to Peter Murphy, who's a human rights and trade union activist. This is 3CR. The organisation I work for, 3CR Community Radio, has been our partner for the last 45 years. And they've always been a part of our struggle, particularly on Invasion Day. And today they're doing a whole day of broadcasting and programming around Invasion Day, as they usually do for the last couple of decades. They've done that tonight. I just want to acknowledge the free shower mob. Yeah. There is much to be seen and I want you to know Cause they're great in the future, they're great in the show At the earth in my son and the trees they must grow Just beyond that horizon, a mountain of hope See we coming through your cities with a story to tell ya The rich and as you want to join us, we'll let ya On the program last week, Palestinian-Australian Nessa Mashni, Vice President of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network spoke about his views following the decision at the recent AOP conference to move an amendment which was carried for a future Labor government to recognise Palestine as a state. Joining with 130 other UN member nations out of 193 to do so. But Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, human rights activist, poet, novelist, founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation, is critical of the AOP claims making flimsy commitments to Palestine. When I spoke with Stuart, I began with his words, quote, the ALP should consider the injustice in any potential Palestinian state. Well, why am I being critical of it? Well, because it's, it's what I call mother and apple pie. It doesn't mean anything. You know, I love my mother and I love apple pie. <laughs> That's completely unexceptional. It doesn't really mean anything. If they were to observe the conditions on the ground with, uh, you know, at the most 22% of bits of land being offered to the Palestinians, but still under the military control of the Israeli defense forces, you'd have to say it was a joke. I mean, it's all very well for distance away to keep mouthing the respect for the two-state solution, but the people who know, the sort of people I quoted in that article, Gideon Levy, the wonderful journalist, Jeff Halper, very, very prominent author and activist, and, and Gershon Baskin, who writes a regular column for the Jerusalem Post. They all say, well, one of, be, please 
be realistic. The two-state solution was a good idea about 10 years ago. But sorry, the opportunity has passed. You've now dumped, you've allowed three quarters of a million settlers to occupy land that was meant to be for the Palestinians. That is Palestinian land. That's why, you know, people have, you know, to give themselves a warm inner glow, the ALP passed that resolution. And where does the ALP fit Gaza into this? I think um, best it's a postscript. The cruelty of Gaza, the fact that the siege is almost 15 years old now, it's just forgotten. That's why if there was sophisticated political analysis, they'd be talking about two million people being cruelly treated in Gaza. And, and then they would say, how does that fit into our equations about ALP policy on Palestine? That's the problem. I mean, it, Gaza is basically conveniently forgotten until there's another, another slaughter. And then it, you know, then it merits a headline for a couple of days. And the right of return? And, and, uh, well, the right of return, they, that, that's, that's in the two hard basket. They're frightened to say that. That's the problem. Like I said, they've been crouching under the yoke of the, of the Zionist lobby in Australia. God knows why. It doesn't take too much courage to stand up to them, to stand up to those people, just in the interest of, of, of a modicum of justice. So the, the right of return, that needs to be very seriously considered because, um, you know, it's there in the UN Charter. We can't avoid it. I mean, we, can't, we can no more avoid that than, than avoid the question about what to do, how to respond to 65 million refugees around the world or what we should be doing with these four Sri Lankan people imprisoned on Christmas Island. Perhaps they're looking at what happened to the Labour Party leader in Britain when he went out and supported Palestine. Yeah, that's a very good question. Look, they're paranoid about the Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon. Jeremy Corbyn was largely penalised because it was the only Western leader of any significance who supported the people of the rights of the people of Palestine. That's not a very radical point of view. It's merely a socially just, international law-backed point of view. And, of course, it got all tied up in the claims about anti-Semitism. I mean, even the, the man who wrote the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism said... Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is not anti-Semitic. He's not a racist and he's not anti-Semitic. But um, I'm not denying that there would have been anti-Semites in the Labour Party as there are anti-Semites in every major political party. But that attack on Corbyn was carefully manufactured. We should have discussed it more openly here instead of running for cover and assuming that the, the volume of attacks must have made the accusations uh, justified. Can you talk a little bit more about the quote that you have in your article I'm quoting now? Nothing short of decolonisation will achieve a transformation and forge a new identity for Palestine and Israel. Well, it it is about colonisation. We're a colonised country, Australia. We're struggling to give appropriate identity to the, the indigenous people of Australia. And this was an invasion, this was a takeover, this was you know, colonisation in, 
in the case of Israel. I mean, it's happened to millions of indigenous people all over the world. I mean, the first step is they usually get slaughtered, then a bit bit later, <laughs> a century later, there's some dawning awareness of what, what happened. And, and in a few countries, an admission to, as to what happened, then slowly an apology, then then questions about, you know, what should we do next? Now, none of that has happened in Israel. I, Israel has never, ever acknowledged the Nakba, the tragedy of 1948, unless there is, I mean, part of decolonization is to admit the past and to raise the questions, how can we make remission for the past? How do we establish identity for the future? How do we establish justice in post-COVID societies and stop the, the continual uh, use of brute force as part of colonization to continue? I mean, in my simplistic way, it's about how to make the transfer from violence to non-violence. And that's what uh, the move from colonization to decolonization is about how to move from the pretense that the vicious past never happened to acknowledgement that it did. The AOP's definition of anti-Semitism, that's been challenged widely, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's absurd that, that Penny Wong should have agreed to this IHRA definition. I mean, even the, the person who wrote it said he didn't expect it to be the gold standard. Jeffrey Robertson says that it's, you know, it's confusing, it's imprecise, you can't use that as a yardstick for anything. And yet, in the specially cultivated anxiety about anti-Semitism, unthinking Labour looks as though they've adopted it. And in response, over a hundred Jewish scholars from North America, from Europe, and from Israel have just written what they call the Jewish Declaration on Anti-Semitism, which completely rejects the, the HRA definition. And among other things, it says that boycotts, and it's a reference to the Boycott Divestment Sanctions campaign, are justifiable forms of protest against the power of state. You know, it's about time we got up to date. It's about time certain people in uh, powerful positions did a bit of reading and head scratching. But in this instance, Labour's gone out on a limb by itself, hasn't it? Even the Liberal Party doesn't agree. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know much about the, the chemistry of, the, of ALP deliberation. I think there's still this sort of absurd fear of offending Israel and the United States. I mean, you can't really distinguish between Israel and the United States, though. It's basically one state. We have to get over that. We have to say... We have to start to have the courage to be to be independent and intellectually, politically, and in humanitarian terms, have an independent point of view based on human rights, based on international law, based on what I'd call a common decency. Now, if the Labour Party did that, I think it would have enormous appeal to the Australian public. Now, they've adopted this definition where does it go from there well i think it has to be revived i think it has to be rejected i think um, the trouble is that the media the, the frightened media collude with it the frightened mainstream media i mean there's a lot of sentiment that says well yeah but social media is offering an alternative i'm not sure about that yet because i mean mainstream media is frightened 
except in a few cases to express anything that looks like criticism of the brutal policies of the government of Israel, let alone, or even the, you know, the, the brutal policies of the government of the United States or of the, the so-called British justice system towards Julian Assange. I've got a particular quarrel. I'm disappointed with the, the mainstream media. They, are, they don't have much courage. They try to spot what's in their interest. The ideals that were expressed in 1948 with the creation of the United Nations have been lost. That, that's, that's a problem. But the issue also, when the State of Israel was created, there were certain things that Israel was supposed to do as well, and they certainly haven't done it, have they? No, no. And, and the so-called international community uh, has never uh, adhered to what the, what the rules were then. I mean, the, the major issue is about who tells the best stories, Jan. I think as a journalist, you know, you know that. And the story for decades and decades was about the Israeli people making the, the desert bloom, you know, the ideal of a kind of socialism in the kibbutz. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago that the Palestinian narrative started to be heard at all. Luckily now you've got the Australian public more understanding, certainly more sympathetic towards the Palestinians. But there's a mismatch between what the Australian public feels and what the politicians are thinking and doing in Canberra. Go back to the BDS and the ALP. What does BDS mean for you? Well, it, it means the only legitimate, uh, not only legitimate, the, the only protest that, um, worldwide that gives the Palestinian people a sense of hope, that gives the supporters of Palestinians' lives and rights a sense of light at the end of the tunnel. Almost every commentator says that. And the use of boycotts is, is worldwide. I mean, governments, our government puts sanctions on people they don't like, but, but they won't. <laughs> but but um, Israel has to be an exception to the rule. That's what BDS is against. Look, BDS just gets simply stigmatized. Terrible lies and terrible untruths are constantly peddle about BDS. They, the, the critics say, and it's part of the Israeli propaganda machine, says that BDS is there only to destroy the state of Israel. BDS is anti-Semitic. Well, if you examine all the, the constitution of BDS, if you see the actions of the leadership, and, and I'm one of the leaders, I suppose, in, in, in Australia, there's nothing anti-Semitic about it, and it certainly does not uh, have anything to do with the abolition of the State of Israel. It is about, of course, the basic principle in the UN Charter about the rights of a people to self-determination. And unless we constantly express that, there's no way of dealing with the decolonization problem that you and I discussed five minutes ago. And also, we've got to recognise that opposition to it by Israel and its friends is so vehement that it must mean that the BDS movement is is working. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the point that Gideon Levy, the Israeli journalist, makes, that um, the Israeli government 
which incidentally is becoming more and more fascist-like. And I have to be very careful about using the word fascist, but commentators in Israel are saying that's a consequence of the last election. Look at the sort of people who've been elected, whom uh, Netanyahu may need to court if he's going to form a government. The Israeli government goes apoplectic over BDS, which, as Levy says, suggests that it's working. Finally, Stuart Melissa Park has successfully settled a defamation case against Colin Rubenstein. What did he actually say about her? Well, he said she was an extremist. He said she was a convulsive liar. A few other, I'm pretty certain he said she was anti-Semitic. A few other epithets. It was totally derogatory of this distinguished, principled former member of parliament. But he has enormous form for that. This guy and a few others won't allow anybody or try to stifle anybody who, who says things supporting Palestinians and, and the possible state of, of Palestine. Or, any, or conversely, anybody who's critical of the policies of the Israeli government. And they, I mean, and they have run a propaganda campaign and tried to bully and stifle people for years, and he's got away with it. Well, on this occasion, he hasn't got away with it because uh, Melissa sued him and, um, and he's had to climb down. I mean, he's refused. What's interesting is that he, although he, he now says that the things he said, he didn't mean to hurt her, he had no idea that it would, would have such a destructive effect. But, uh, I mean, the guy's gutless and without principle. He hasn't apologized. He's refused to apologize. Look, it, nevertheless, it's a, I think it's a watershed. Melissa's, it's a watershed that says we cannot, we must not tolerate these propaganda campaigns by people like Rubenstein and others to stifle free speech, which includes criticism of a, of a government's brutality. We have to stop that. and We have to stop being fearful of confronting the um, people like Rubenstein or, for that matter, people like Mr. Sharma, the MP for Wentworth. He's in partnership with Rubenstein. I mean, he's a former ambassador to Israel, a former Australian ambassador who's now a conservative MP or a co what do you call it, a liberal MP. As an ambassador, he was completely one-sided, as far as I can make out. He was an Israeli file, I mean, he, and appears to behave in the same way as the Member of Parliament. I'm sure Sharma's going to um, continue to say certain things which we can discuss uh, later in the year. But as you said, it's a watershed or a precedent for others. Yeah, I think Melissa's victory in the action is, is very significant. We must take heart from that, that we have to say the well-organised bullying, it's called Hasbara, um, which is, you know, propaganda for let's dramatize our virtues and let's stop any critics we have to start we have to confront that and say we're not going to put up with this anymore let's have an australian democracy that's that's enthusiastic about human rights and that doesn't um, bow to the bullies who think they've got a monopoly of power and can do what they like well they <laughs> the melissa judgment says sorry you can no longer do what you like Thanks so much, Stuart.
Okay, Jan. Forward to talk to you next time. I've been speaking with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.